Stratigraphy is a branch of geology that focuses on the layering of rocks. So when you see cutaways of rock faces because of erosion or blasting for a new highway or whatever else, all those horizontal lines running across the newly exposed faces are layers of primarily sedimentary and volcanic rock. The layers are called strata. The way they form these layers is called stratification, and the study of such layers and their layering is called stratigraphy. I should note that there are also stratigraphers who work in the world of archaeology rather than geology, and their field operates on very similar principles to those of the geological stratigrapher. For instance, it can generally be assumed that when you take a look at a dig site or a cutaway, the stuff that is higher up, that's closer to the surface of the earth, will be newer, and the things that are further down will be older. That's called the principle of superposition. It's also generally assumed that a layer within these formations will extend to cover a large area. So you could conceivably trace one layer across thousands of square miles, and as long as that area wasn't obstructed when it was at the surface, and even if that layer is now divided by some lake or canyon, you can still generally treat that layer as being a continuous body. That's called the principle of lateral continuity. Both of these principles, and several others that are held to be generally true across both geographic and archaeologic stratigraphers, are heavily reliant on the understanding that what was once the surface of the earth is now buried under more recent surfaces. And by assessing these distinct horizontal regions, we can look back in time and learn about previous periods and test our hypotheses about how things were from how people lived, in the case of archaeological stratigraphy, to the levels of oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere, as is the case with lithostratigraphy, which is a subfield within the broader realm of geologic stratigraphy. Now, there are sub-subfields in this space as well, including petrology, which focuses on the physical conditions under which certain rocks form, geochronology, which helps us determine the age of rocks and fossils and such, and biostratigraphy, which kind of straddles geology and paleontology, as it involves figuring out the ages of various strata based on the fossils they contain. So it's looking at all those layers of rock, sorting through the evidence of life that existed within them, within each layer, and using that evidence to give each layer in a particular region a time range. They can figure out with decent accuracy when that layer was at the surface, using these and other indicators. The combination of these and similar fields, along with other seemingly disparate but actually adjacent fields, like archaeology, have allowed us to look backward in time, helping us better understand the nature of our planet, the cycles it goes through, why it looks the way it does, how the countless moving pieces fit together, while also helping us, at times, forecast what could happen next, how we might better interact with the planet to ensure that we don't muck things up too badly, and it's even helped us understand concepts that point outward from the planet rather than inward. 
Magnetostratigraphy, for instance, is a method that utilizes the DRM, which in this case means detrital remnant magnetism, in a geological sample. And as long as their natural alignment, their magnetic pole orientation, is preserved and recorded, the reading from such a sample can help us figure out what the polarity of the planet's magnetic field was like when that particular layer of rock was first deposited. So not only does this additional bit of data allow us to test our understanding of when a particular strata was at the surface, it also helps us test our assumptions about the movements and cycles of Earth's magnetic field, which shifts and reshapes and even flips over long enough periods of time. What I want to talk about today is a debate that's occurring within the world of geology that has led to not just a very public and somewhat petty debate, but also a valuable discussion about how we carve up, label, and discuss the distant and the relatively recent past. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Atlantic, and it's entitled, Geologists Are Feuding About the Collapse of Civilization. And the subtitle to that piece is, The Year's Most Acronomious Scientific Fight is a Megadrama Over a Mega Drought. Let's start with the surface layer of this story, which is the conflict between these geologists and then move downward into the deeper strata of why this argument is even happening, how we organize knowledge and history, and what's at stake in this particular debate. Earlier this summer, the summer of 2018, the International Commission on Stratigraphy, or ICS, declared that the Holocene Epoch, which is the geological unit of time, the Epoch, in which we currently live, and which began about 11,650 calibrated years ago, which means it was something like 11,650 years ago, as we typically measure years, but it's based on radiocarbon dating, and the amount of carbon in the atmosphere has changed meaningfully over the years. So there's some wiggle room with that number. But the ICS announced that this chunk of time, this epoch, the Holocene, would now be broken up into three smaller stages and ages. The stage being the collection of rock materials that makes up a physical strata, and the age being the period of time represented by that stage. Both stage and age have the same name, so I'm going to use the term stage for simplicity's sake, but just be aware that they are technically two different measurements even though they are often used interchangeably. So the managing body of stratigraphy the ICS declared that the most recent epoch, the Holocene, which is the one in which we currently live, the one in which everyone and everything for the past 11,650 years or so have existed, is now broken up into three pieces, the Greenlandian, the North Grippian, and the Meghalayan stages. And a note on the pronunciation of that last one, it's named for the city of Meghalaya in India, and I'll get into why that is a little later. But I want to note for now that there are multiple ways to pronounce this stage as a consequence of its heritage and its now multiple use cases. 
So I'm going to pronounce it Meghalayan for the purposes of this episode, but know that it is also pronounced correctly several other ways, depending on which language the person speaking about it usually speaks. So each of these stages of the Holocene, stages that did not exist until July of 2018, and which were not even initially presented as possibilities, as glimmers in their intellectual parents' eyes, until about six years ago, when they were posited in a scholarly geology paper. They are now official, real-life things. All those geological posters that you probably remember from science class, showing the different layers of rocks, the different time periods that they represent, the Jurassic, the Ordovician, the Carboniferous, those will have to be swapped out with new posters that show these newly added stages. Each new stage represents a segment of time during the Holocene. The Greenlandian stage is the period from the Ice Age until about 8,300 years ago. Around that time, things began to warm up a bit, and that led to the North Grippian, when there was a dramatic cooling around the world caused by all the melting glaciers that had formed during the Ice Age and which began to melt during the Greenlandian. Those melting glaciers flooded the oceans with fresh water, which in turn messed with the Earth's oceanic currents. And that period of oceanic weirdness, which ended around 4,200 years ago, leads us into the final stage of the Holocene, which is the Meghalayan. This stage is kicked off by a cataclysmic drought that lasted about 200 years, and which is thought to have been responsible for the collapse of numerous burgeoning ancient civilizations in places as diverse as Egypt, Greece, Syria, Palestine, Mesopotamia, which is in modern-day Iraq, the Indus Valley, which is in modern-day India, and the Yangtze River Valley, which is in modern-day China. Chopping up this massive chunk of time into a trio of smaller time pieces seemed prudent, as each chrono portion is distinct enough that we can point at them and identify individual traits and variables that kind of shaped the way the world operated during that time period. And the Meghalayan in particular allows us to denote a stage during which the modern world began to come into being. Yes, we had some early civilizations before that point, but because of several different environmental variables, those early efforts seem to have been, at least partially, and perhaps even completely, in some cases, wiped off the map, which in turn paved the way for other groups to step in and build what many of us have come to see as our cultural ancestors. The early civilizations we usually think of as the forebearers that started us on the path that we are all presently walking. It's in this particular claim, though, where we find the roots of the conflict that is mentioned in that article in The Atlantic. A few months after the ICS declared these new historical designations, a man named Guy Middleton, who is, among other things, a visiting archaeologist at Newcastle University, the author of a book about the collapse of ancient civilizations, and the senior researcher on a project focused on climate and its impact on human culture in the ancient world. He wrote an article for Science Magazine making the argument that this new designation, that the Meghalayan in particular, was based on a faulty premise. Namely, he claimed in this piece, which was published as a perspective article, 
So more of an opinion piece, not as a proper scientific journal work. In his piece, he claimed that, quote, there was no sudden universal civilizational collapse, end quote, and that, quote, overall the archaeological and historical evidence suggests that 2200 BC was not a threshold date, end quote. Meaning, the argument that this period of time was worth outlining and labeling because it was defined by climate-catalyzed collapses that then led to the modern world is flawed from the outset. That collapse, he claims, is not well supported by the evidence, and in fact, there is no solid evidence that climate change of any kind has ever led to catastrophic periods of war or civilizational ruin at any point in history. He's not saying that it could not happen, or even that it did not, but he is arguing that accepting this idea as truth is intellectually dishonest at best, and smacks of oversimplification. Middleton's position on this matter reflects that of many scientists throughout Europe in particular, who on average tend to take what we might call a more nuanced stance on the matter of climate change and its correlation with historical civilizational ups and downs. Importantly, they are not arguing that climate change is not happening and that it's not a problem. What they are saying is that the dogma, or rather what seems to them like dogma, that exists within the American scientific community when it comes to this subject, that the history of humanity is strongly pegged to the history of shifts in our climate, is not as supportable by evidence as is often implied. And as a consequence, this division, this new designation of Holocene stages, is potentially reinforcing a flawed view of history. Something that may seem like just a label, but which could also formalize an unproven hypothesis, rather than representing well-understood and proven relationships and sequences of events. Middleton had that article published in Science, and, well, the ICS, the official group behind naming these stages and epochs, among other responsibilities, and the folks who had worked on this particular set of names and designations alongside the ICS, they were not pleased to be called out in this way. There's some pretty serious shade thrown at Middleton in this article in The Atlantic by folks on the other side of the debate. Mike Walker, a professor at the University of Wales and the leader of the team that proposed the creation of the Megalion stage, said, quote, This is a totally misleading piece of writing which displays a lamentable grasp of the facts, end quote. Another member of that team, a man named Harvey Weiss, who is a professor of archaeology at Yale, said of Middleton's article, quote, I do not see a single accurate claim, end quote. He then went on to say in a series of emails to the reporter who wrote this piece, quote, Middleton, a pop archaeology writer, failed archaeology PhD, and English as a second language instructor in Japan, now claims archaeo expertise in matters about which he knows nothing, and gets great audience in science of all journals, end quote. He then added, quote, for me, the most intriguing question is why does science publish this rubbish? End quote. The nature of these criticisms, of Middleton's criticism, is illuminating, I think. Few people in this space seem to believe that dividing the Holocene up into distinct stages is a bad idea, and the ICS have been thinking on this for years. I suspect it is a relief for everyone involved to now have more precise ways of addressing these stages, 
as before all they could really do was refer to the late or middle or early Holocene and hope that the person on the other end of the conversation, or paper, would be using the same rough time delineation as they were. It was a very imprecise way of doing things. The issue here is that they decided to use a measurement that was less about straight geology and more about how geology intersects with human civilization. And like with anything human-centric or human-adjacent, that means there will be conflicts in perception and interpretation. In this case, we look at this supposed global mega-drought that is thought to have happened about 4,200 years ago, the best records of which come from a stalactite found in a cave in Meghalaya, India, which is why the folks at the ICS decided to use that moniker for this particular stage, and that drought-catalyzed moment was declared to be important was distinguished as being vital, not because traces of iridium began to appear in the sediment within the strata, as was the case with the so-called golden spike caused by the debris plume cast into the atmosphere by the asteroid that contributed to the extinction of the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago, which was the delineation used for a previous geologic label. Instead, they did it because there was a geologically detectable and measurable event that also coincided with a series of important-seeming human-related events. This is what Middleton really seems to have issue with. He admits that there could very well be geological evidence that defines that time period and makes it suitable for establishing a new stage. But when the ICS announced this new stage to the world, they couched it in archaeological terms, smashing the world of geology into the world of archaeology. And despite the fact that both fields have their stratigraphic experts and studies, the two groups are still looking for and prioritizing very different things. A good bit of the conflict here, then, is about one type of scientific inquiry stepping a toe over the line into another's territory and creating a heated public argument as a consequence. Of course, we can't really divide these fields up even if we want to. The history of humanity is connected to the history of the environment, even if not always or ever in a catastrophic sense. We are shaped by our environment just as we have come to shape that environment in return. To ignore that fact, to try to keep those academic walls up, and to defend our silos against any possible incursion is a great way to make sure that we never learn everything that we could learn. There's a lot of chest thumping going on in this case, from both sides, and in both cases, it seems like the trigger that set them off is the idea that someone else, someone from outside their specialized, academically reinforced worlds, would dare to challenge their authority on a particular matter. These experts have no doubt earned their accolades, but I would argue that they should, nonetheless, avoid becoming immune to questioning or to reframing from outside sources. We should honor that kind of knowledge and mastery, but we should not become dogmatic or worshipful about it. Now, all that said, the larger conversation here is about how we divide up knowledge, and particularly how we divide up time and history in a broad sense. In this case, we have stratifications of rock that came to rest on the surface of the planet and which were then, slowly but surely, buried under new layers of some slightly different material. Those rocks were then compressed by pressure and time, and studying them has allowed us to delineate between periods in a very physical, tangible way. 
Rather than simply saying, yeah, 10 is a nice round number, which is what we have done with our measurement of time in many cases, dividing things up into decades, into centuries, into millennia, and so on. In the geological world, we have been able to look at cross-sections and borehole samples and to carve up time using measurements derived from the timelines shown in the samples. Lines that indicate some major shift in climate, in surface conditions, in the chemical compositions of the rocks and the air in which those rocks sat, and in things like the relative moisture of that location indicating drought and flood and other similar conditions. So comparably, the world of geology would seem to be a more straightforward and relatively unconfrontational field when it comes to assigning designations. The dividing lines are literally right there in the materials that they are studying. But as it turns out, it's nowhere near that simple. Yes, we can see the changes in the strata over time, but no, we do not always agree about what those changes mean. And if any particular change is meaningful, because there are a whole lot of shifts in the composition of what's laying there in the ground, but most of these shifts are not used as an excuse to slap a new label on a large period of time. Within the cloistered ranks of any scientific field, we could find disagreement over the meaningfulness or non-meaningfulness of a particular discovery or measurement. The rock layers might tell us something, but that something may not be worth changing the epoch or stage over. It may just be a normal variation within a particular phase of earthly roiling and shifting, but add to that the increasing overlap with other fields. In this case with archaeology, the unearthing of human history through our artifacts, tucked away in the ground in their own layers. And we see an increase in the amount of disagreement and the number of potential conflict points. Not only is some other geologist disagreeing with our assessment about the meaningfulness of this feature that we're pointing out, now this other dude from the next profession over is telling us that we're wrong as well. The subsurface understanding that runs beneath this discussion is that the way we divide up and label these sorts of things can be meaningful beyond the world of geology. Choosing to define the Meghalayan in terms that are heavily dependent on human history, for instance, rather than pure geological history, very subtly adds implied scientific support to other conversations about human civilization about climate change, about how we should discuss and address climate change, about the relationship between human society and the earth upon which we have emerged and evolved, and countless other topics of discussion. Neither group in this particular discussion is taking sides in the climate debate. That is, to be clear, only really a debate in the United States, and primarily for political and economic reasons, not because there's much doubt about the broad strokes of climate change. But there is an unspoken understanding that this new designation could insinuate geology into that heated discussion, and that perhaps these new labels could be a response to that debate, a frustrated decision by a group of scientists to put their feet down firmly on the side of the data in an effort to counter the nonsense emerging from the fossil fuel industries and the politicians that they have purchased. And as a consequence, the designations may not make as much pure geological sense as they might have otherwise. That potential political motive could be tarnishing the preferred raw scientific perspective. Further, this is the kind of change that will promulgate quickly throughout science textbooks and classrooms around the world. 
It's an official labeling system that is honored by geologists everywhere, regardless of their other beliefs, their political or geographic or cultural backgrounds, their understanding of or beliefs regarding human-catalyzed or amplified climate change. So if there are other considerations being slipped into this new designation, those considerations could be spread far and wide. They could, even if only surreptitiously, in the background, push a particular narrative that geological stages, that the turning of epochs can be influenced by, and perhaps someday even controlled by, human beings. And while that's something that could be true, to take a stand on the matter, well before the geological community has officially declared this to be factual, that may have tainted this declaration a bit, in the eyes of some stratigraphers. It's not that this is a bad or necessarily incorrect label. It's that it is using criteria that is not usually considered when this sort of categorization process takes place. One more facet of this story, which I alluded to earlier, is the implied conflict between the in-group and the out-group when it comes to scholarly research and publication and debate. In this case, we have a collection of academics and researchers who have worked with and alongside the ICS, which is the official body tasked with coming up with these designations. And outside of that challenging official doctrine, we have a guy who is also involved in academia, but who has taken what you might call a more practical route with his work. Rather than becoming a tenured professor, he writes books on these subjects. Rather than publishing in journals, aside from that editorial piece in science at least, he writes pieces meant for the mainstream audience. He teaches classes about other semi-related fields rather than focusing all of his time and attention on a single narrow field of inquiry. From the outside, these deviations from the norm may not seem like anything of note. And writing a book about something and having interests and influences beyond one narrow focus might even seem to be a boon, not a burden, to one's intellectual growth. From the inside of some academic circles, though, this approach can seem out of touch and lacking in seriousness. Guy Middleton wrote a book challenging various civilizational collapse theories, sure, but he wrote that book for the Vox Populi, the general non-academic population. And as such, his work was derided by Weiss, one of the gentlemen who worked with the ICS on these new labels. He derided him as a writer of pop archaeological drivel. He considered Middleton to be someone who was not serious as a thinker or a researcher, and who was not on the inside. He wasn't one of us. Us, in this case, being a true academic who has taken the time to climb the ladder and play the game to get themselves into positions where real decisions are made and where a person's intelligence and knowledge is judged by other real, true, inside thinkers rather than those they sometimes deign to teach through the universities that support their real work, their research and such. Now, I don't want to imply that everyone working in academia thinks this way. That is certainly not the case. And I don't want to imply that all authors of books not meant for a university or other academic audience is taken less seriously by the world of academia, as that is also not the case. But there is a classist culture inherent in this type of conversation. And more often than not, when an official body of this kind is challenged by someone who is not their own, not one of their academic kin group, you will often see this kind of language leveraged 
which implies, or in some cases very clearly states, that this challenger with the alternative point of view is not a real thinker. He's not leaped the same hurdles as the rest of us. So why should we care what they have to say, what they think? In some cases, this is actually a ham-fistedly made but still true point. Look at the world of climate science. We've got experts all over the world approaching this issue from all kinds of angles, and they are all coming to about the same conclusions, that the climate is moving into a new period of relative extremes, and that human activity, to some degree, has contributed to that shift. There are natural processes at play, yes, but we have moved the needle on those processes in meaningful and measurable ways. This is something that we have mountains of data to demonstrate at this point. But despite that, there are barbarians at the gate calling all of this into question. And yes, a lot of those barbarians are politically and economically motivated, funded by those who stand to benefit by keeping the status quo in place as long as possible so they can maintain their positions of power and influence. But some of them are just people who see the data differently. Maybe they are only choosing to accept some of the data as true and real. Maybe they're seeing most of it but missing some vital component. Maybe they're seeing all of it, and they just put a different spin on what it all means. Some of this stuff is subjective, and viewed from a slightly or dramatically different angle, it could look like an entirely different thing. This does not mean, though, that these outside people are necessarily playing on the same field as the holistic body of climate scientists, who are part of the larger international scientific establishment operating from a place of more complete expert knowledge, know-how, and shared data. So it's true, in some cases, that those barbarians will help tear down old walls and break apart the aging establishment and make that space, which has rusted and become lazy and too full of itself to get anything right, more young and dynamic again. It'll add new, valuable perspectives to the mix and help us all understand things more thoroughly and usefully. But in other cases, those barbarians are just barbarians, wanting to reap and pillage, wanting to burn something down, wanting to claim some of that unearned glory, some of those mantles of perceived authority for themselves. And instead of taking the time to earn them, to actually learn what they need to know, to expose themselves to challenging ideas beyond those that they were born with or indoctrinated with, they are keen to enforce their ideology on the world that they are raiding. They want to force the world of climate science, for instance, to accept their ideas as equal to the ones that have actually been vetted and tested and measured and compared and contrasted. Which, if they actually did that, if this establishment took every opinion as being equal to every other opinion, it would negate the entire purpose of doing research in science in the first place. But this is something that many of us have been told is our birthright. To have our opinion and our badly vetted or not vetted at all, ideas held up as being serious and worthwhile, as being worthy of consideration and conversation and respect, as being equal to anyone else's evidence-based opinions, even when, according to the well-established standards of science, opinions that we hold of this kind are very much not equal to those well-vetted, well-researched, and tested perspectives. Now, the world of climate science is kind of an easy example here because we have a great deal of agreement amongst the multitude of experts doing research in many interconnected fields so that we can say with a fair certitude that we know what we know. And all we really have to do now is lock down the specifics, the exact consequences for actions we've already taken, and the precise outcomes if we make various moves in the future. 
Most of the time, though, it won't be so clear. It may seem clear to people who really truly know what they're talking about, but for non-experts, for those of us reading about such things in the Atlantic or wherever else, non-industry publications, it can be tricky to sort the persnickety academic personality trying to defend their turf against outsider challengers who might call their brilliance into question from the stalwart defender of actual knowledge and truth defending the walls of understanding and rationality against the onslaught of pissy nonsense peddlers who are trying to push some agenda or another, or trying to make themselves look good and marketable by positioning themselves against the mainstream, the widely accepted and defended storyline. In some cases, we may even see a little of both. We may see our collection of well-researched, hard-earned societal knowledge defended by people who are also a little bit biased against outside ideas but who, most of the time, are the protagonists in this larger story, even if they are flawed protagonists. None of this context changes anything about this particular case, of course. The Holocene has been broken up into pieces, the damage is already done, or our current epoch is a little more understandable and well-defined, depending on your perspective on the matter. The official body for such things has spoken, and plans are in motion to swap out all those classroom posters and textbooks to ensure the next iteration will reflect this new, broadly accepted reality. Our collective perception will shift, and future generations will have little reason to even wonder if there was ever any question about how the last nearly 12,000 years was divided up and labeled and formalized. It's valuable to keep this nuance in mind, though, as it can help us sort out hidden incentives on all sides of these types of decisions. And it can help us remember that labels are not innate. They are not inevitable, and we can actually divide up things like time and history in countless different ways. And that can remind us that even if the correct way of seeing things has been established already, there could be some value found at times in looking at the world from another angle. Not because that other angle is necessarily the better one, but because it could allow us to see small things that we would otherwise miss. Things that were perhaps once obvious, but which have become obscured by the way that we have decided to organize knowledge and the world. The website that I would like to recommend today is one that I find myself going back to relatively frequently for inspiration, just for a nice hit of aesthetic indulgence. The website is called the Book Cover Archive, and you can find it at bookcoverarchive.com. And it is exactly what it sounds like it is. It's just a collection of book cover designs. And this may or may not be something that you've ever paid attention to. I'm somewhat sensitive to this. My background is in design and illustration, and I've designed numerous book covers for my own books, but also for books written by other authors. And there really is a craft to it. There's certain elements that need to go on every book cover, with very few exceptions. And the best way to present that information is different based on the genre, based on whether it's going to be in digital or whether it's going to be sitting on a shelf somewhere. There's a whole lot of creativity and communication know-how that goes into designing that type of end product. And by perusing a website of this kind that just has thousands of different book covers... 
all of which are absolutely gorgeous in different ways, you can begin to see some of those commonalities and then some of the things that these different designers are doing. You'll also find information about the designers of these covers, the books themselves. This site is pretty good about including metadata for these different images. But if you're ever looking for any kind of aesthetic inspiration, whether you're designing a book cover or anything else, this might be a good place to start. The website is called the Book Cover Archive, and you can find it at bookcoverarchive.com. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find out more about the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com, and feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of them, though it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.